Um, We're so grateful for our praise team. You know, every week um, they're getting out of their jammies. They're coming here early. They're rehearsing. They're leading us in worship. So, hey, can you throw them some love? There's a little love button there on your computer that you can send up love for them for what they do. And I'm going to clap for them, man. I, I really appreciate everything they do for our church and just leading us in such a beautiful, beautiful way into the presence of God. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, we started a brand new series uh, last week called Living in Light of Eternity, Living in Light of Eternity, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now the COVID 19 pandemic poses a very important question that people are asking in the midst of all the isolation and all the uncertainty about what our future is looking like. And is the question where do we find hope in uncertain times? Where do we find hope in the midst of an uncertain future? There's not only the prospect of sickness and death, but also the economic devastation for many people, how many businesses will be forced to close and how many jobs will not be there after our shutdown comes to an end. And certainly, what about the possibility of another pandemic rising up? Now, in ancient cultures, they saw history in a cyclical way. In other words, history was such that it would repeat itself over and over again, or they saw it as always declining. Things were always getting worse. The Greeks were the first ones who came up with the idea that as human knowledge increases, so human life can get better. I'll say that again. As human knowledge increases, so human life can get better. It was the Western culture that was the first culture um, that viewed history not in a cyclical manner, but in a linear manner. So that as increased knowledge of man continues to grow, history can then get better and better. So during the Middle Ages in Europe, um, it became almost an entire Christian um, society. And so during that time, uh, there was another mindset that began to unveil itself. And it was the mindset that there is a God who has created everything and who oversees everything. And this God did not create everything, winded up like a clock and stepped back and just watched it unfolding or unwinding itself. That God is actually involved and engaged in the very creation that he spoke into existence. And so this God who is overseeing everything, he will one day bring history to an end and that there would be this judgment, and evil would be put down, and everything wrong in the world would one day be made right. And so that was the, the, the mindset of the culture of that day and time. Uh, this idea that the future is going to be better and better than the past as knowledge increases um, was the secular side of the thought processes that pretty much had a, a great track record until we hit the 20th century. For in the 20th century, we had about 50 years that were really bad. Right? So you had World War I uh, was the first thing, and then you had a flu pandemic that hit America. And by the way, 675,000 people lost their lives just in the fall of 1918 due to the flu. And then that was followed up with the Great Depression, which was then followed up by World War II. And so it was a, a, a history, a period of history in which it was just like, you know what, in spite of the fact that our knowledge is increasing, the world is getting worse. Things just aren't working out the way we thought they would. And so when you come into the 21st century, and unless you're 90 years old or older, you, you don't remember all of the, about World War I and you know, the 1918 flu pandemic and um, the Great Depression, you didn't have to live through that, World War II. Um, But as the 21st century began to unroll itself, technology began to ramp itself up and to take over. And uh, as a result of that, we came to believe that technology had the capability of solving humanity's problems. In fact, 
Our future began to look so bright because of the belief that knowledge, technology, and science, as they continued to increase, things would just get better and better and better, and we would eventually be able to solve all of our own problems. Yet, in spite of our technology, we are finding out that we are the loneliest generation ever. That in spite of all of our technology, the use of opioids continues to increase every single year. Mental illness is going through the roof. Depression, increased suicides, especially among the middle-aged children, continues to rise. Uh, divorce rate has been unchanged. We live in a constant fear of terrorism, of nuclear weapons falling into the wrong hands. Our technology and ability now to travel around the world at any given moment, can make pandemics spread across the face of our globe in a, an unprecedented manner. Technology has not gotten as much of anything. In fact, during this period of isolation, I listened to some doctors from California, and in all of their clinics, during the isolation period, they have seen a huge, huge increase in drug use, alcohol use, spousal abuse, child molestation, all of these things are, are the fallout of the problems that humanity faces day in and day out, have been exasperated due to the isolation. Now, there are two problems with the secular idea that human progress based on knowledge would create a better life. First of all, it assumes that the goodness of human nature and that people would use that knowledge properly. But people do not always use knowledge, technology, in appropriate ways. You know that when Hitler was trying to wipe out an entire class of people, the technology that was used in those gas chambers was of the highest quality on how they could do that. And so we assume that as technology ramps itself up and we have, you know, now the ability with nuclear weapons to take, you know, basically eliminate the entire world if it falls in the wrong hands. And so there's no guarantee that nation will not rise up against nation or that technology won't be used against a class of people or a, um, uh, you know, a, a race. The second problem with this is that People who are victims of unjust social structures, it is said, this is why they behave badly. Right? So what that means is simply this. The reason why people do bad things is because they had a bad beginning. Parents didn't love them, uh, grew up in you know, a, a bad situation, got a bad start in life. And if we could just provide them with an environment of equal footing for everyone, then everyone would make better decisions and we would live better lives and have better societies and better countries and a better world. That's the line of thinking. Well, the other side of that is, uh, that's kind of a liberal side of thinking, the conservative side of thinking goes, well, uh, no, that's not the problem. The problem is that some people are just flat out evil. They do horrible and terrible things and they're kind of subhuman. And so the problem with that is you become judge and jury and oppressor over those individuals whom you place in that category, whoever that might be. So neither one of those are the answer. But the Bible gives us the answer. It really sets the context for what Paul is going to talk about in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. And so here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that every single human being that includes you, is capable of doing what is harmful and evil because at the core of human nature, there is corruption. And in spite of all the goodness that is in us because we've been created in the image of God, and certainly we have the capability and capacity of doing good things, in spite of all that goodness that is within us, we also, we also have the ability to do things that are not good. Because there is something wrong at the core of our existence, at the core of the human heart. And that's why we can harbor things in our hearts like jealousy and envy and anger and hatred. In fact, Jesus said, if you hate somebody, you've already committed 
murder. The Bible says there's life and death in the power of the tongue. You can use your words to literally rip somebody up and, and kill them, at least emotionally. And we, we harbor unforgiveness, and we can steal, and we can kill, and we can lie, and we can cheat. And so we are, we are constantly looking for something on the outside, whether it be technology or knowledge or science or whatever it might be. We're constantly looking for something on the outside that will change the culture in which we live. But the Bible says that the only way the culture gets changed is by God doing a work on the inside of humanity. It's not an outside job. It's an inside job. In other words, at the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And all the knowledge, technology, and science in the world can't change the heart. God addressed that in Jeremiah 17, 9, right? He said, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all else. Who can tame it? This is why Jesus came into the world. He came into the world to change the human heart. When you change the human heart, you begin to change culture. You begin to change the way you think. You begin to change your character. You begin to change the way you conduct yourself, your actions. It's an inside job. In addition to that, we have an outside enemy whose name is Satan who leverages our sin nature, uh, the problem with our heart against us. It's called temptation. And so he tempts you to do things. Remember, there are two rival kingdoms in this world. Both of them are unseen, but what happens between those two rival kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, gets played out on planet Earth. We are a part of what's happening in the, the rivalry of those kingdoms. And so as, you know, let's say, for example, I get up tomorrow and I'm just, not, I'm just in a bad mood and I'm just having a bad day and my wife says something and, I, and, I, and it just really like triggers me and I want to say something, but I know I, I shouldn't say it because the minute these words leave my mouth, it's not going to set well with her. And then I've got this voice from the outside that's like, you know, Satan sitting on your shoulder going, ah, go ahead, let it rip, let it go. She deserves it. She should know better. You're not having a good day. And so I let it go, right? And so now all of a sudden we're having conflict with each other. God has a future plan for the world that addresses all of these issues. The condition of the human heart, the, the rival kingdom that is warring against his kingdom, all of humanity and all of God's creation has been infected by a virus called sin. And God's plan involves Jesus returning to earth, but he, he, before he returns to earth, Jesus said to us, as we are unfolding this out of Matthew chapters 24 and 25, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is talking about how God's going to roll out his final plans here on planet Earth. He says, listen, um, before the next event, there's going to be like birth there's going to be like birth pains going on. There's like contractions. Now, listen, a woman doesn't experience contractions at conception. She doesn't experience contractions during the process of pregnancy. She experiences contractions prior to the birth of a child. And so Jesus says the contractions that the world is not going to get better and better in spite of its knowledge, in spite of science, in spite of technology. In fact, it's going to get worse and worse. And as it gets worse and worse, look upon this as the contractions that are happening because God's about to give birth to something, and what God's going to give birth to is what's called in the Bible the second coming of Christ. Now, Jesus' second coming comes in two stages. God is going to bring Sin and all of its devastation on planet earth to an end. The Bible says he will destroy the present heavens and earth by fire. He will recreate the heavens and earth that will be devoid sin, which in turn eliminates things like sorrow and sickness and death. All of those things which are the fallout of sin here on planet earth, he's going to do away with all of that. And he is very clear how all of this unfolds and how this takes place. So Now listen. The next event on God's calendar, as the birth pains begin to increase, God's giving birth to Jesus coming back to the world in what is known as the rapture of the church. It is God's next event on his divine calendar. There is absolutely no prophecy that needs to be fulfilled before that happens. It could happen today. It could happen tomorrow. It could happen next week. Jesus says when he comes, it will be like a thief in the night. Listen, a thief does not announce the arrival of him coming into your home and stealing from you, right? 
He's going to be immediate. It's going to be quick. In, in fact, that word rapture literally means to snap away, to, to, to snatch away, to seize, to be caught up, to, um, to a physical removal. And so it may happen tomorrow. I don't know. If it does, I'm, su- I'm, I'm sure that it's not going to happen before you've had your cup of coffee because even Jesus knows you're not worth anything until you've had your caffeine. All right? So, but I just want to get you, I want you to set the timeline in your mind. Listen, prophecy is not given to us by God to scare us. It is given to us by God to prepare us. The timeline is that God created the heavens and the earth. He placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden on planet Earth. He gave them free will out of his love for them so that they could exchange love with one another. They rebelled against God and ate of the forbidden tree. Sin entered into the realm of humanity. Sin began to devastate all that God had created, not only the hearts and lives of Adam and Eve and their offspring, but also in the world in which we live. Our world has been devastated by sin, therefore it does not operate properly. And as evil continued to expand, God says, I'm going to bring in a Savior who's going to deal with the issues of what sin has done in the world and in our lives personally. And so God chose a man named Abraham. He called him out of Ur of Chaldea, and he said, through your offspring, I will raise up a nation, and in that nation will come a Messiah, and he will deliver, he will deliver humanity from their sins. So Jesus arrives, and then he comes onto the scene of his ministry. John the Baptist looks at him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Jesus dies for the sins of humanity. He's buried in a grave. He is resurrected. He ascends back to heaven. The angels say to the disciples, Just as you saw him leave, he will also return. And so after his, his leaving... The Holy Spirit came upon the disciples of Christ, and it began what is called the age of grace or the age of the church. For Israel has rejected her Messiah. God has set her aside. He's not done with her yet. She'll be drawn back in here uh, here in a couple weeks as we go through this timeline. And so he set her aside, and now the gospel goes out not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. God is building his spiritual temple, and when the last stone has been set in that temple, the Bible says that Jesus will come back, known as the rapture of the church, which Paul's going to describe in the verse we're going to look at, and he's going to take the church out of this world, and that will set off a whole new series of events. And so the rapture means that literally, uh, when Jesus returns, the bodies that are in the grave of those who are followers of Jesus Christ, all through the ages, will be pulled out of the graves as The soul of the individual is coming back with Jesus. Their bodies are reattached to the soul, and that which was perishable will be made imperishable. That which was susceptible to disease and death will be made no longer susceptible to disease and death. We will have a brand new resurrected body. And those of us who are alive, if you are alive when Jesus returns... In the rapture, man, you're instantly going to be taken out of here. So the word rapture literally means like in the twinkling of an eye, it's like that quick. The rapture happens. There are approximately 8 billion people on planet Earth presently. It is estimated that one-third of those are followers of Jesus. So probably around two and a half, three billion people are all of a sudden going to vanish off of planet Earth. That's God's next divine event. Now, what would that be like for those left behind? Well, we can only imagine. Several years ago, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye wrote a series of books called Left Behind and tried to describe what what would it be like on planet Earth when the church is raptured out of its existence. So here's a little snippet of what they said. Even the newscasters' voices are... Were, were terror-filled as much as they tried to mask it. Every conceivable explanation was proffered. Thousands were dead in plane crashes and p- car pileups. Emergency crews were trying to clear the expressways and runways, all the while grieving over loved ones and co-workers who had disappeared. Cars driven by people uh, who spontaneously disappeared had careened out of control. The toughest chore for emergency personnel was to determine who has disappeared and who was killed and who was injured, and then they communicate that to, to the survivors. 
Local news television stations from around the world reported bizarre occurrences, especially in time zones where the event had happened during the day or early evening. CNN showed via satellite the video of a groom disappearing while slipping the ring onto his bride's finger. That's why you don't want to be unequally yoked or she'd gone with him. A funeral home in Australia reported that nearly every mourner disappeared from one memorial service, including the corpse, while at another service at the same time, only a few disappeared and the corpse remained. Morgues also reported corpse disappearances. At a burial, three of the six pallbearers stumbled and dropped the casket when the other three disappeared. When they picked up the casket, it too was empty. At a Christian high school and soccer game, uh, most of the spectators and all but one of the players disappeared in the middle of playing, leaving their shoes and their uniforms on the ground. Now, this is kind of like somebody's imagination. Of like, what is it going to be like for those who are left behind? The fact of the matter is Jesus himself and the Bible talks about the rapture, although he never used the word rapture, but the Bible never uses the word trinity either, but the concept is there. At Jesus' birth, there was the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who were all there at that moment in time. So here's what Jesus said in Luke 12, 40. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Paul, a follower of Jesus, who wrote much of the New Testament, said this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So when we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul had gone to the to the church in the city of Thessalonica, that church was filled primarily with new believers. They were young in the faith, and uh, they had a lot of questions for the Apostle Paul. Now, early on, after Jesus ascended back into heaven, even Paul himself really thought that Jesus would return in his lifetime. None of the disciples thought that Jesus' return would be delayed for, you know, here we are a couple thousand years out. They thought that they would see his return, and so uh, as a result... Those who were in Thessalonica, um, many loved ones had died, and they were wondering, well, if Jesus comes back and raptures us out of here, are they going to miss it because they've already died, their, their bodies have already been buried? What happens to them after death? And so they have a lot of questions. What happens to people after they die? It's the same question that is plaguing people today. Why? Because 53,275 Americans have died of the coronavirus up to this point. And so the question is always, what happens when someone dies? What takes place? What transpires? And so when Paul begins describing the answers, he talks about the rapture. And as he talks about it, he's going to make it sound so glorious, so exciting, and so wonderful. And for every follower of Jesus Christ, it is. Because the rapture of the church is our hope for the future. God wants you to know you do not have to fear death. God wants you to know that death does not have the final word in your life. And so Paul, in a very inspirational way, he says to those in Thessalonica, listen, I want you to know, I want you to understand exactly what transpires when a person dies, and how this coincides with the next event on God's calendar when Jesus comes back and raptures the church out of the world. So let's pick it up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now notice Paul says right out of the gate, there are two ways to grieve. You can grieve with hope or you can grieve without hope. He wants them to grieve with hope. We as adults um, learn the very, two first, very first two steps in processing grief probably when we were children. We picked this up. Not knowingly. It's not because your parents sat you down and said, Hey, uh, Greg, let me tell you what the first two steps in processing grief is all about. No, we experienced something. We experienced death. And for most of us, it was the death of a pet. 
It may have been a, a rabbit, a dog, a snake, a cat, whatever it was for you. And so when your pet dies as a child, you don't understand death. You just know that your pet has died, and so you feel horrible, right? You start crying, and, and you're, you're just like all torn up, and you, your parents are like, what can I do to help console you? What can I help to make better? And so usually a loving, caring parent will say, oh, honey, uh, great, don't worry about it. Don't, don't feel bad. We'll get you another dog. We'll get you another rabbit. We'll get you another snake. We'll get you another cat, although I don't know why, but we'll get you another cat. Uh, don't. So we learned the very first two steps in grief process. Processing grief. Bury your feelings, replace your losses. Bury your feelings, replace your losses. That is hard to do when it comes to the human race. If you ask any parent who has lost a child, whether by a miscarriage, an accident, or an illness, they always feel that sense of loss. There is a part of their heart that has died almost. There's just a spot in their heart that is forever longing for, longing for the presence of that child once again. They, they, they can't replace that loss. They, they can't replace it with anything or anyone else. I watched my mother go through this experience when my sister at age 20 was killed in a car accident and there was just something that moved and transitioned in my mother's life because of that strong sense of loss. And so that's kind of what the scenario is in, in Thessalonica, is people are losing loved ones and they're wondering what happens after death and, and Paul wants to address this issue. Listen, guys. There is more than one way to grieve a loss. There are, you can grieve without hope or you can grieve filled with hope because of what God has in plan. What God has in store for that person who's drawn their last breath off planet earth and now all of a sudden they die. He says, we don't want you to be ignorant about what? Those who fall asleep. Notice the word fall asleep. When, when, a, follower, when a person dies... You really haven't lost them. They really haven't died. They, they've simply gone asleep. So what does Paul mean by this? When God created us, he created us in his image. That means we are spirit, soul, and body. And so as a, as a, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, if you're a follower of Christ, you have the spirit of God in you. You have a soul, which is your mind, will, and emotions. And you have a body, a physical body through which we um, interact with each other. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you came into the world spiritually dead, but you still have a soul, your mind, will, and emotions, and physical body. So whether you're saved or not saved, the moment a human being draws their last breath on planet Earth, the body ceases to function. And we say, well, they've died. No, they've not really died. You saw, yes, they have. I, I, watched, I, I, I saw their body in the casket. I'm telling you, they're dead. No, they're just dormant. They've just fallen asleep. That body is one day going to be resurrected. And the moment they drew their last breath, their soul moved out of that body and it continues to live. It is continually conscious and aware of its surroundings. So regardless of where that soul is residing, that soul is very much alive. The body sleeps, the soul is alive and conscious. We call it death when the body ceases to function. But it's really just sleep, and that's the way the Bible describes it. In fact, we get our word cemetery from the word sleep here in the Greek. So a cemetery is literally like a dormitory where a person's body sleeps. And it's not the, listen, every time I do a graveside, here's what I say. This is not the final resting place for this body. It is merely a temporary resting place for this, for this body. For one day, this body will be resurrected. So when death occurs, the body sleeps, but the soul never dies. Jesus is the one who started this line of thinking. Remember when Jesus received word that his friend Lazarus had died? And we looked at this on Easter Sunday. Mary and Martha send word. Jesus delays his coming. Four days in the grave, Jesus shows up. Mary and Martha ask Jesus the same question and say, make the same statement. Hey, Lord, have you been here? This would have never happened. Our, our brother would have never died. And so how did Jesus respond? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live. Even though he dies, 
and whoever lives and believes in me, watch this, will never die. Lazarus' soul never died. It simply exited his body into paradise, and his body was left behind asleep, awaiting for it to be awakened by the Lord, to be resurrected. Think about in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, a follower of Jesus, was being stoned to death for his his faith. And it says, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. What happened? His spirit was released into the presence of Christ, and his body was sleeping. It had died. But death, from God's perspective, the body is asleep. Or what happens to those who are citizens of God's kingdom through his son, Jesus Christ? Paul says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I just want you to see that the reason Paul says we don't have to grieve like those without hope is because when this physical body ceases to function, it simply goes asleep into a dormant state of being. And yes, it may be put in a vault, it may be put in the ground, it may be cremated, it may, you may have your ashes spread all around. Don't let that wig you out. God can reassemble it. Uh, he reassembled it the first time. And so, but God says, you are, you are never more alive because death is just a doorway into eternity. The soul does not soul sleep. The soul does not enter into purgatory. The soul will either enter into God's presence or it will enter into what the Bible calls Hades, which is the abode of the dead awaiting their resurrection for their ultimate judgment. That's what the Bible teaches. And so while that brings great hope and comfort to the saints of God, those outside the kingdom of God, it can create a great deal of fear and angst and anxiety because death often does that in people's lives. So in Luke chapter 16, Jesus said there were two individuals who died, a rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, when he died, his body ceased, went dormant, put in the grave. His his soul, spirit went into paradise. For the rich man, same thing, but his soul goes in to the other side because at uh, that time Hades was in two compartments into the side of Hades or what the Bible refers to as hell, which is you're outside the realm of God's presence and it's like an itch that you cannot scratch. You are longings for something to satisfy your soul, but there's nothing in hell that can do that for you because now you are separated from God. He's the only one who can satisfy our souls. And so the fact of the rapture is a secured blessing for every believer, compels us then to walk in holiness. Jesus challenges us to live in a constant state of readiness for his return because it affects the way we live. We live differently in light of eternity when we realize eternity may happen today. Here's how John put it in 1 John 2, chapter 3. Dear friends, now we who are children of God and that we will be has not been yet made known But we know that when he appears, that is Jesus, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. I don't know about you, but I am all pumped up and ready for for the return of Christ, okay? Now, I know when I was like, you know, 16, 20, I mean, the rapture of the church was talked about a lot, and like it was going to happen tomorrow, and I, I'm like many young people, like, oh, Lord, please don't ha- let it happen. You know, I haven't been married yet. I want to have kids. There's so much I want to do, so much I want to accomplish, but I can tell you, the, long, the older I get, the more welcome it is. <laughs> it is. It is the hope. It is a hope that I have because I know that my future is absolutely secure. So let's unpack what Paul said here, and I'm going to do it in rapid fashion. What is the basis of the rapture? Here's what he says. The basis of the rapture. Verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so The basis of the rapture, he says, first of all, is the work of Christ. Notice what he says. Verse 14. Again, um, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. 
And so the basis of the rapture is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But it's not like just looking at it as, as a historical event that happened a long time ago. Paul says, if you want to be a part of the rapture, if you want to be taken out of this world when Jesus returns, you must have a personal relationship with Christ, period. But so notice what he says in, in verse 14. He, he says, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus so those who have fallen asleep, watch this, in him. In who? In Christ. It's the favorite phrase of the Apostle Paul. When you give your life to Jesus, you enter into that relationship, you are placed into Christ and he into you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that important? It is important because the Bible says when we came into this world, we came into the world with a sin nature, and so we just naturally sin. That's why we rebel against God. Nobody had to teach us how to do that. And so the Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is what? Death. What is a wage? A wage is payday. You work, you earn a wage. They pay you for the work that you have done. So the Bible says the way that you know that you have sinned, the payment for that sin is that you're going to die. Now, the Bible uses the word death in three different ways. There is physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. So let me differentiate. The way that I know that I've sinned, the way I know humanity has sinned against God, is because 100% of all humanity still dies. Everybody. Something's going to take you out of this world. It's the fallout of sin's entrance into the realm of humanity that happened when Adam and Eve sinned against God. God said, on the day you sin against me, you will surely die. They died immediately in their spirit. God had breathed in them the breath of life. The Holy Spirit was removed. And that's the second aspect called spiritual death. They experienced spiritual death. And then there's the, 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 death, the progressive death of the soul, that is your mind, will, and emotions, you know, you don't think right, you don't feel right, and you start doing wrong things, and then ultimately they died physically. Well, the same thing is true for us, is that we experience all three. So I have, I'm going to experience physical death. I came into the world spiritually dead, disconnected from God. And so if I die in that state of disconnectedness, then I will experience eternal death or eternal separation from God, the Father who created me. The only way that I can bridge that gap between sinful me and holy God is to have a mediator who can step into the realm of my existence and provide a pathway by which I can move out of my sinfulness into God's presence, and that's where Jesus came into play. That's why Christ came into the world. That's why the Bible says the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in whom? In Christ Jesus, him alone. So what Jesus did is that he came into the world and he put himself on a cross to die not for his sins, but for the sins of humanity. And so God put all of the sins of humanity onto his record and he, he poured out his wrath upon Christ as payment for the sins of humanity. He drank of the wrath of God so that God could in turn offer me not his judgment and wrath, but he could in turn offer me forgiveness of my sins. That I could be released. That's why Jesus, when he was on the cross, said, To die, it is finished. Humanity's sin has been paid for. I have absorbed the cost because anybody who is providing forgiveness has to absorb the cost in order to provide that forgiveness for somebody else. And that's what Christ did. And so here's the key How do I get God to credit what Jesus has done on the cross to my account? How do I get him to make that transfer? Because it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen just because you're a human being, just because you were born in this world. He says, the free gift of God, how do I receive a gift? I must reach out and receive it. Jesus is providing the gift, but I must personally receive the gift for myself. And when I do, at that moment, God credits the payment of Christ on the cross for my sins as he says to my sin record, paid in full, paid in full, it's finished, it's paid in full. And so at that moment in which I enter into relationship with Jesus Christ by faith, 
all of a sudden God says, I've credited your account, your sin account, with paid in full. You are now a follower of Jesus Christ. You are in Christ. He is in you. I'm breathing into you the Holy Spirit. All of your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. You're a brand new creation in Christ. I've transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of my beloved Son. I have brought you from death to life, and therefore your life is absolutely different and new. So why would I fear death? I know that when this body ceases to function and you put it in the ground, my spirit, my soul leaves the body and enters directly into the presence of Jesus. My body is in a dormitory in, a gra- in the ground, but will one day when Christ comes back to rapture the church, that body will be resurrected out of the ground, reunited with my soul and spirit. That is the hope that I have for the future, and I hope it's the hope that you have secured for your future. Jesus said this in John 14, because I live, you shall also live. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, by the power God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. And so on the basis of the rapture, the basis of the rapture is on the work of Jesus, and it's also on the word of Christ, right? Look what he says also. He says, according to the Lord's own word. How did Paul know this stuff? Jesus gave him a divine revelation. Jesus wanted us to know what happens after someone dies. Jesus taught about it, and now he's filling in the gaps through the Apostle Paul, and he says through Paul, this is God's next event on his divine calendar. So let's look at the blueprint of the rapture in verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here's the blueprint, the return of our Savior. It says the Lord himself. He's not sending a substitute. He's not sending an angel. He's not sending a group of angels to call out the elect. No, he is coming himself. Why? Because he's coming for the church who is his bride. When a man and woman gets married, Paul took that that relationship and likened the relationship that we have as the bride of Christ with Jesus, who is our groom. And Jesus is just all excited about coming back and receiving his bride. He's He's not giving that over to somebody else. He himself personally will come and call his bride back to himself so that we might go to the place that he has prepared for us. That's what Jesus said in John 14. He says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Right? So he's coming back. And the way that he's, he's coming back is through the rapture. And so notice it says he comes with a loud command. In the Greek, that means to fall in, to get in formation. It's kind of a military term. And so he says, man, The bodies that are in the grave that were lying down, they're going to stand to attention. They're going to come up out of those graves. It's like like a millisecond. Straighten up, dead come out. That which, you know, was mortal is is wiped out, replaced with immortality. And all of heaven's going to be singing, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Jesus said in John 5, I tell you the truth, a time is going and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's why when Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus and he shouted out and said, Lazarus, come forth, he used his name. Otherwise, he would have been emptying out every grave. Why? Because Jesus' voice is a voice of authority. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. I have the authority to call my church, my bride, out of the grave, and that is exactly what Jesus is going to do. Notice it's accompanied with the voice of the archangel. Now, according to Jewish tradition, the rabbis believed there were seven archangels, but according to the scripture, we only know of one, and that is Michael. And so somehow Michael is lending his voice with the voice of Jesus. And then there's this trumpet call. As Paul described before, the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here you have the Lord Jesus descending out of heaven towards the earth. He's giving this loud command. The archangel is lending his voice with that command. And the dead in Christ come up out of the graves. There's trumpets blowing. And in the Old Testament, the blowing of the trumpets is the assembling of the people. God's calling out his people. The body's coming out of that dormant state in which they've been been laying. 
And then there's the resurrection of the saints. He says the dead in Christ will rise first. Why do the dead in Christ rise first? I don't know. I just figure they're six feet deeper than we are. They're getting a head start. I'm not sure. But here's what I do know. Every single time I do a funeral service and I'm at a graveside and I'm presiding over that graveside, I am standing on resurrection ground. Because at any day, any moment, any time, Jesus may come from heaven and call those bodies out of the ground. That is a sobering thought. There's the resurrection of the saints, and then he says there's the rapture of the church. We who are still alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds and the Lord in the air. I don't know about you, but I want to be alive, and I, I'd love to feel that, that instant moment in which you like, you're just like, you're bursting off this world, off this earth, and, and man, your body's being changed, and that which is mortal becomes immortal, and that which is susceptible to disease and death, and you're giving this new resurrection body. People say, well, what's the resurrection body like? I don't know. We just know from Jesus that, you know, you, you're going to have this, you know, he, Jesus looked the same. He could eat, but he could also pass through walls. I just think it's a cool thing that when the rapture happens, I know that I will be leaving planet earth in the twinkling of an eye, like a snapping of your finger, and all of a sudden, what Jesus began in this process called salvation will have now come to its completion, and I will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. Amen? It's a good place for an amen. Here's the last one. It's the reunion of God's people. Notice what he says. He says that we're all going to be together, right? He says, for the Lord himself will come down, the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And so the blessing of the rapture is this. It's twofold. We have, number one, hope in the face of death. Hope in the face of death. The rapture is designed to bring hope at what would otherwise be the most hopeless moment in life when somebody dies. God doesn't want us wondering what happens after death. God wants to bring hope into the situation. And the person with the most hope has the greatest amount of influence. The older you become, the more you begin to realize there is something in life far worse than death. Now, you don't think that when you're young. All you can think about is life and your future. But I can assure you that as for the sick, for those who have been sick for an extended period of time, their bodies are wearing out and breaking down, death doesn't look all that bad anymore. Life doesn't look so bright anymore. They just want to move out of this earthly tent and move into the presence of God. I understand for those of you who are younger and you, you, know, you have a healthy body and all that, that doesn't seem very appealing to you. But it's amazing to me how many people I meet who are petrified over the fact that they think that somehow they're going to be put in this casket and thrown into the ground and they're going to wake up and they're going to realize they're down there and they're suffocating and they're trying to claw themselves out of there. No, 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 no. That is a lie from the enemy. <laughs> Listen, the moment you draw your last breath, your soul, spirit will vacate your body. If you are an unbeliever, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it will move into Hades. It will be resurrected at a later time. If you're a follower of Jesus, that body may go into the ground or into a vault or cremated, whatever you have done, but your spirit, your soul has moved into the presence of Christ. Now, one of the things that has really been hard for people in this coronavirus pandemic are those who are in our nursing homes who are isolated away from their family, and they're experiencing death by the droves. And people say to themselves, it, it, it is so sad, and it is sad, it is gut-wrenching, it is heart-wrenching, but I want you to understand something. My sister works um, for you know, she works with, with people who are in their last days, right? I, I know a lot of nurses that do the same thing. 
Can I just tell you something? Um, when people near death, they see things. They are aware of things. Because here's what Jesus said. When he gave that illustration of Lazarus and the rich man dying, he says the angels of God came and escorted Lazarus into paradise. Listen, these elderly saints may be in a nursing home, isolated away from their family, but listen, God takes care of his own. They're going to see things, they're going to sense things, and God will send his angels into their life, into their moment, into their existence, so that when before they even draw their last breath, they understand the presence of God is with them, and they will carry them out of that body and escort them into the presence of Jesus. You have that hope in Christ. That's what the Bible teaches us. Do not rob God of his glory. That is, that is a notion of the evil one. Well, God's not taking care of his people and he's letting them die alone. And, and they don't know, you know, and, and, and they paint this, Satan paints this horrible scenario in our lives. And then we get angry and frustrated and bitter with God. I can assure you that God has taken care of those who are his in a way far greater than we could ever do as a human being. You hang on to that. Here's the second thing we have. We have a secure future. And so we will be with the Lord forever. How long forever? So encourage one another with these words. When death hits my doorstep and my soul exits my body and you place it in the grave and you mourn uh, over me or you applaud that God finally took me, I don't know what it's going to be for you, but I can assure you I have never been more alive than when I am in the presence of Jesus. This is why I do not fear death. I don't have a reason to be afraid of coronavirus. Do I want to get it? Absolutely not. Who would? It's a horrible thing. But I don't fear death. Why? Because I know what happens the moment my body ceases to function. This week in our church, we've had two blessed saints go on to be with the Lord. Billy Cleveland and Sue Williams. Billy was in her 90s. They didn't die, die of coronavirus. Billy in her 90s, but Marl and I were talking. I mean, she was a dear saint of God, loved Jesus, uh, loved to come to church, loved worshiping, um, loved her pastor. And when she, I, I can I can just imagine her in heaven. And she, oh, it's so beautiful up here. Uh, and just praising the Lord. And, and Sue was very unexpected. Just happened this weekend. But you know what? All the pain, all the suffering, all the breakdown of the physical body has now been left behind. And one day, Jesus will resurrect that body and he will make it new and he will reunite it with her spirit, her soul. And therefore, God will have accomplished all that he set out to do. We have a secure future in Christ even though we have to face troubling times, troubling situations, troubling people. And I close with this. Christians have never believed in a God who doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. Christians believe that the worst possible thing happened to the best possible person who is Jesus Christ so that he could come and secure for us our eternal security. So the only question that remains for you is simply this. Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Put your trust in Christ. He's the only hope you have for your eternal future. Let's bow our heads together.